Father in heaven, uh, you are God. You are the one that inspired the construction of this building. You gave Moses specifications. You gave men talent and gift and wisdom to build it and to design it, something that was otherworldly. And so, Lord, we pray that as we reflect upon these things thousands of years removed, we ask that our minds may be sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit. We pray that our ideas may come through the path of simplicity and that we may arrive not just at understanding but at wisdom and a new way of living is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've, I've entitled this Light in the Shadows. Light in the Shadows. I chose this title to pay respects to a theologian that is uh, significantly impacted my own spiritual walk and my own theological study and pursuit of a deeper understanding of the Bible and of God. Uh, he, his last name was Hazel, and he wrote an article uh, years ago, years and years ago, before I was even Adventist, um, called Light in the Shadows, and he was discussing sanctu the sanctuary and the doctrine of salvation and relating the two together. And so since I was doing this seminar that I felt was really drawing upon some of the concepts he was introducing, that I felt like it was only proper for me to pay tribute to him um, and his contribution to our church and our better understanding of our Adventist identity as understood through the sanctuary and that approach that it gives us on salvation. Now, in Genesis chapter 11, in verse 14, we are introduced to the beginning of a human obsession. Human beings from the very beginning of time have been obsessed with building things. We love to build and specifically, this obsession with building things is attached to the concepts of a nation, the first nation, a, a global society that was networked under an idea of rebelling against God. Now, their idea was not to rebel against God. Their idea was not to trust God, but to trust themselves. You know, one of my favorite basketball teams, they're, they're, one of their slogans is strength in numbers. But... Unfortunately, that doesn't really apply when it comes to spiritual things. There may be a certain amount of strength in numbers. And mind you, when you go to Genesis chapter 11, the Bible says that here these men said, come let us build. They introduce and create this concept of brick and mortar. And then the Bible says that God comes down to investigate the building that these men are building. Now, it's interesting that God doesn't send someone to investigate. But God feels like this thing is so enormous, this is so concerning, this is such a universal issue that God has to come down and see it for himself. And, the, and God says that look at this thing that these men begin to do. He says, behold, they are one. And he says there's nothing that they imagine to do that will be withheld from them. The power of unity, God said, is so powerful that even if we were united against his will, he says there's nothing that you would imagine to do that you could not do. The only thing that could stop them from achieving their aim of building a tower all the way up to heaven was God to come down and confuse their language. All the world was in one place on one level. And this passion for building things never left us. We might have spoken different languages, but it was still present you find that these are actually some of the tallest buildings in the world. And obviously you notice the tallest one there on the far left, I grew up in Chicago, and there was a time where the Sears Tower was the tallest building in the world. That time has long gone. I had to come back and someone corrected me and I was like, yeah, the tallest building is in Chicago. You know, I'm from Chicago. And then they were like, actually, it's not in Chicago. So if you look up here, you'll notice you know, all these buildings, but the one on the far left, that one seems to kind of surpass everyone. Isn't that correct? It's kind of way above. I know it looks like it's a slight amount, but if you understand what we're talking about, meters and me hundreds of meters taller than these other buildings. It's called the Burj Khalifa. Now, the Burj Khalifa 
is in the city of Dubai, which is in the emirate of Dubai. The sheikh of that emirate, his name is Sheikh Muhammad. Now, Sheikh Muhammad is the one that built the tower, but the name Khalifa comes from Sheikh Khalifa, who runs Abu Dhabi. So how is it possible that he built a building in his own emirate, because the word emir means prince. So emirate is basically the rulership of this prince. And so United Arab Emirates is like the United States of America in a sense. All the princes came together and then they elect a prime minister who happens to be Khalifa at this time. So what happened was Sheikh Mohammed was building the Burj Khalifa and about 80% through it, he ran out of money. So he went to Khalifa, his sistering emirate, who was also the president of, um, not the president, but the prime minister of uh, Dubai, United Arab Emirates. And he said, yeah, I'll give you the money. The only thing is, you need to name the building after me. You see that the desire to make a name for yourself continues with buildings. You think about even Donald Trump, Trump Towers, right? I mean, don't worry, I have no, let me not lose my sanctification, so <laughs> pray for the men. <laughs> But you realize that names, being in this association with humanity's obsession for building. Now, what do you think is the primary purpose of many of these buildings? Many of these towers, they're not built to any specific higher meaning or purpose. When you think about these buildings, many of these buildings are built simply for the aim of commerce or business. They are simply office space. For people to say, oh, I'm going to rent this whole floor, and they charge these ridiculous prices. And if you go to the, all the way to the top of the Burj Khalifa, literally, if the sun was setting, if you go to the top, the sun will be up. That's how high it is. It's almost, it's al I think it's a little more than a kilometer high. Right? This is about 0.6 of a mile. It's almost half a mile high is the building. So you could be at sunset, go to the top of the building, and the sun will be above the horizon. Now they pride themselves on this thing. When you think about the fact that in these buildings that are made for commerce, that are made for business, you recognize that also we have a similar concern when it comes to spiritual things. Humanity has also been building from even ancient times. If you look at the fact that you have some of these ruins um, there when I was in Cambodia, Angkor Wat, and you have this thing that is still standing. And this was built by human beings hundreds, 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 thousands of years ago. You look at the Taj Mahal. You know what the Taj Mahal is, right? It's just a mausoleum. It's a place for some, where someone is buried. Can you imagine that a man built his, yes. Sorry, built this tomb simply for a woman who is dead. So what you, what you also realize is, even beyond purposes of commerce, right, just to pay homage to a dead woman that he loved, he built the Taj Mahal. Now, we can go even further, and you look at this grand mosque in Abu Dhabi. If you go there, and you're recognizing the building literally has carved gold, literal gold, in the building. This is a mosque, a place of worship. All of these are actually places of worship that you see on the screen. So you look at this building here on the bottom right, the, these individuals are trying to maximize the fact that architecture was also attached to belief and a relationship with God. So this is why many times you'll notice churches are built a certain direction, facing a certain part of the cardinal, direction to allow natural light to come in, because light was considered to be a symbol of the presence of God. It was considered to be a symbol of the favor of God. So you have places coming up with creative ways to explore how the architecture can maximize light naturally coming in. This one on the left, you wouldn't even know that that was a church, a worship place. They decided to make it so minimalistic. You just come in, you sit on the floor, you worship because the whole focus is upon the spiritual. It's not upon the physical. And this is how we continue to build edifices. This is some more churches, really famous churches around the world. This building here on the top right, I know it's hard to see with the light. 
um, it actually is formed like a cross when it opens up. So it starts off like a straight, long building, and when you open up to welcome the members, the doors open into making a cross when you look at this. Um, and then, of course, it closes back when the members leave. So the whole idea, and they worship with those doors open like that, to basically talk about the architecture is expressing a certain theological point about God himself. You look at this one on the left, same thing. Everything's building up towards the center, which is leading towards a vertical looking. So the worship experience happens beneath the dome of heaven. And we're able to look into this natural light and receive the light of God's presence and his favor. Now, God, when he decided to make his house, go to Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. God decided that his house was going to be for a very specific purpose. Isaiah, in the 56th chapter, the Bible says, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of what? My house of what? Of prayer. So God looks at, the, God looks at his sanctuary that he told them, let them make me a sanctuary that what? I may dwell among them. Exodus 25 verse 8. But even though God says this is the purpose of the sanctuary so I can dwell among you, he says, I want my sanctuary, my temple, my house to be a house of prayer for all nations. God expected to welcome people into his house. He says, I want to dwell among you so that you can invite other people. So imagine the privilege that the Israelites had to be the ones to create God's house on earth. And as they built a house for their king, they could invite all their friends to come fellowship and to join them in prayer. But clearly the architecture sometimes misled them and they got caught up in the details, missing the bigger picture. And I believe the same thing happens to us. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 2 in verse 3. We look at another approach that God brings to the sanctuary that one, his house is a house of prayer. But in Isaiah chapter 2, in verse 3, the Bible says, Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now we're talking about people who are beyond the Israelites who are saying, come, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob. We're going up to their God. Why? So he can teach us his ways. So the understanding of the sanctuary is that here it is, this house of prayer that is for all nations. But yet at the same time, he says that people are anticipating, unbelievers, that they're going to go to that house and they're going to learn of God's ways. This was the intention. Now, Hebrews chapter 9 begins to bring something to us about the sanctuary in the Old Testament that we learn from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9 introduces the concept that the sanctuary, beginning in verse 9, if you have a King James Version, it'll say the sanctuary was a figure. But if you have a New King James, it says it was symbolic for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So the Bible says that God, so here's the writer of Hebrews, which we believe to be the Apostle Paul, he says the sanctuary then was symbolic. The word there is the Greek word parabole. It is where we get the English word parable. So he says the sanctuary is something that is a parable, and the word parable, which we're going to explore in a little bit, simply means to place something beside. Now, what would the sanctuary be a parable of is the question. So let's look in chapter 4 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 1. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 1.
The Bible says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to who? What does your Bible say? Who is them? Let's go back to chapter 3. So when we go back to chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of where? Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not do what? Enter his rest. Now he just said there remains a rest for some of us to enter in chapter 4. So here we're talking about people who were led out of Egypt, who were delivered from the slavery of Pharaoh. He says these individuals, they could not enter his rest. And, and Paul says the gospel was preached to them as well as to us. The question is, how was the gospel preached to them? How could they have known about the gospel as we understand the gospel? That there would be shedding of blood. That someone would lay down their life on behalf of their sins and would rise up the third day and would go on to be their priest to mediate between them and God. Those are all New Testament concepts. So if that's our understanding of the gospel and that we could get forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Christ because he has died, that's the gospel. Can you say amen? If that is the gospel, the Bible says that was preached to them in the Old Testament. The ones who came out of Egypt, the gospel was preached to them. How would they have ever conceived of something dying for them and shedding blood? It would be what? How would they have seen it? Through the sacrifices and in the sanctuary. Exactly the point. Through the sanctuary of the Old Testament, God was preaching the gospel to them. Now what that does for us is it raises the question, could the sanctuary then be, if Paul says it is a parable, it is set beside something, it is a parable of salvation? Now let's continue to explore this concept. There are a lot of famous parables. Obviously, when you think of a parable, there's almost a classic parable of the prodigal son. Am I right? Everyone knows the parable of the prodigal son. That's not even the whole parable. It's actually three parables in one parable. But we really focus in on that prodigal son, wasting his inheritance, riotous livings and prostitutes, and he comes back and the father meets him a great way off. And we look at that parable as it's being set beside a particular truth. The parable is not about how a father should treat his son. Are you with me? That's not what the purpose of the parable is. But these famous parables have allowed us to understand deep truths. Now, let's look at some other parables. There's a parable called Akfash's Goat. This is a Persian parable. Has anybody heard of this parable before? Well, it's a very funny parable. It's about a philosopher who teaches his goat to nod and say yes whenever someone shows him a book and ask him, does he understand? And the goat just nods anyway. So no matter what you say, oh, do you understand this book? The goat just nods. And it's a parable about how people will nod as if they understand when they really don't understand. It's like when I go to certain countries and I tell them, oh, I, I speak French. Then they start talking and I'm looking at them and I'm just nodding. But I don't really understand. We call this Akfash's goat. That's what you're doing. You don't understand, but you're pretending like you understand. It's a very famous, popular Persian parable. Another one is called the rooster prince. Has anybody heard of this one? Some people call it the turkey prince. This was started by uh, Rabbi Nachman of uh, Breslov, I think is where he's from. And he's the founder of the Hasidic Jews. Now, he tells this story about how a king and a queen, they had a son. And when their prince grew up, one day he just came to the table. They were eating dinner. And of course, you know, when the king and the queen and the royal family is eating, they just throw the crumbs on the floor. 
That's for the peasants and the poor people to eat. So as they're throwing this stuff on the floor, all of a sudden one day, their royal son decides to get down on the ground under the table, takes off all his clothes and start clucking and plucking like he is a rooster, eating the chicken bones and all the stuff on the floor. So the family calls all these different physicians or wise men or sages to try to help him. Look, you're not a turkey. You're not a chicken. You need to come out of this. But nothing can convince him. And finally, one sage says, I know how to cure your son. They said, please tell us. He says, I will show you. Takes off all his clothes, gets down under the table, starts clucking like a rooster. As he starts clucking like a rooster and eating, he starts befriending the prince. And the prince says to him, hey, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm a turkey. I'm just down here eating just like you. What are you doing here? He says, well, I'm a turkey. I'm just here eating. He says, well, hey, and he tells the, the, the queen, he says, can you throw me a shirt? And he builds a relationship with the prince and he says, you know, turkeys can wear shirts too. So he puts on a shirt and then the son puts on the shirt. Then he says, hey, throw me those pants. And a couple days later, he comes to the son and he says, hey, your majesty, you know, turkeys can also wear pants too. Then before you know it, he says, hey, you know, turkeys can also sit and eat at the table as well. You see what he's doing. And the whole purpose of this parable was to say, when you find that the whole idea was that the Jew, the prince that was under the table, was representative of the Jew who had lost his true self. He had forgotten who he was. He had lost his way from God and that this wise sage was representative of the rabbi, the Hasidic rabbi, who was going to help him find his way back to God. But by doing that, he had to come meet him on his level. And he had to introduce it in a way that he could understand and that he could accept step by step back to God to show the rabbi his responsibility and to show the foolishness of a Jew who doesn't understand that he is royal and that he is a prince. A common parable shared in the Hasidic tradition. And you realize that parables make certain things very easy to understand that are typically very complex. Let's look at one more. There's a guy by the name of Ignacy Krasinski. Krasinski. I want to make sure I don't mess up his name. I know there's some Polish people in here. Now, he has a parable called Abuze and Tair. Now, this is actually a, a rhyme, so it actually rhymes. And what he does is he tells a parable about a man who comes to his father, and he says, hey, I befriended the sultan, and I'm going to become the son-in-law to the sultan, the, wife, the, the husband to his daughter, and I'll become wealthy and have all these different things tomorrow. The dad responds and says, well, you know, the favor of your highness and also the attention infections of women and the, wind, the weather in autumn, they all change very quickly. And just before you know it, he went back to the palace and the sultan had changed his mind and it just started to rain that afternoon, even though it was sunny in the morning. And so the whole fact was about be careful when you start bragging to people. Because people's favor can change very quickly. Now you look at all these parables and you're like, wow, that's interesting and that's nice and everything. And these teach nice little lessons, right? They could be fables. They could be allegories. But for us, what is a parable exactly then? What is it that makes all four of these things parables that we've just discussed? I want to use the pomelo principle. Does anybody know what a pomelo is? Some people know. Most people do not. Now, the pomelo principle is this. How many of you do not have any idea what a pomelo is? Raise your hand. Okay, now, I'm going to teach you what a pomelo is by, teaching, by talking to you about something you already know. Are you ready? Okay, you're going to know what a pomelo is. I have a picture coming up on the screen. So a pomelo is a citrus fruit, similar to a grapefruit, slightly sweeter, and the skin is green. 
So can you picture a green grapefruit, pink inside, that's a little sweeter? Slightly bigger as well, but they grow different sizes. Now, can you picture what I'm saying? Now, let me show you what it is. That's a pomelo. That's what it looks like. Does it look like a grapefruit? Is it close to what you were picturing in your mind? When you see it cut open, right? It's like you peeled, if you cut a grapefruit in half, it would pretty much look almost similar. Now, the pomelo principle is this. I'm using something that you understand and that you know to teach you something you do not know and you do not understand. Are you following that? This is a principle of communication. This is, this is a device that teachers use, that communicators, speakers, people use this all, you actually use it in your everyday life all the time. If you came to me and you said, Sebastian, remember that vegan restaurant we went to? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I remember that vegan restaurant. You say, man, you gotta go to this other restaurant. And I'm like, look, man, there's nothing that could be better than that first vegan restaurant. You would look at me and you would say, listen, man, I'm telling you, it's so much better, but I've never been to the restaurant. So how could you help me to understand what it is in order for me to go? You would say, okay, so you remember how the first place, right, they had those veggie burgers? Like, these burgers are way better. Like, they have more flavor. Remember we didn't like the French fries? These fries are like actual potatoes. <laughs> now what happens is you're using something that I understand to teach me what I do not understand. And this is the practical use of a parable. I'm going to use something that you know, that you're familiar with, that you've had an experience with to teach you something that you have not. Now, I'm almost done. So the question is, what is placed beside something? So if a parable is placed beside something, that's literally what the Greek word means, to place beside something, what is it that we're placing, it, placing beside? We're taking something that's abstract, can you tell what that is? What is it? What does it look like? They look like lights, right? But you see, this is an abstract version of them, but there's enough remaining that you can still tell that that's what it is. Are you following? Now, you could argue that it could be something else, right? Could be headlights, could be the lights of a building, could be traffic, could be maybe an airplane taking off. You have no idea, but you know that what's involved? Lights are involved. So in a parable's goal is to take that abstract thing and bring it into focus so that you can understand it, so that you can see it. It is designed so that you can take an abstract idea and be able to wrap your mind around it and analyze it and find clarity in that particular idea. It's also there to bring things to, to be stuck in your mind so it's easier for you to remember. Listen, it's hard to sit down and talk about theological terms about sanctification. But through the parable of the sanctuary, you can easily remember. When someone says, oh, this and this happened, you say, nope, I remember the parable. That's not true. That doesn't line up with the teaching, just like the prodigal son. If I told you, if you come back to God, God will not accept you. Based on the prodigal son parable, is that true? But you'd already know that without going to any other Bible text. Simply because you know the parable. But you also know the truth that it's trying to communicate. This is a little cartoon that I put up there. It says, as this shows, the key of good business strategy is simplicity. So he has this complex equation. Just so you know, this is exactly how to do it. It's just that simple. This is usually what happens when we talk about the sanctuary. I can almost guarantee you that most of you feel like you don't know a lot about the sanctuary. Or you feel like it's going to take you forever to learn a lot about the sanctuary. You're like, well, I get the general idea, the three apartments. You know, I get the idea of some of the sacrifices. But when we start getting into the, the food offering and the meat offering and what's the difference between a sin offering and a trespass offering... And then we start getting into, well, this priest gets anointed. Why does Aaron get anointed on his ear, on his thumb, and on his toe? You, you follow what I'm saying? And we're trying to figure out what does this all mean? And we're trying to get into the nitty-gritty details. So we have to be clear on what are the characteristics of a parable. The first thing is to keep this in mind. 
it has one fundamental point. The prodigal son only teaches one message. You know, some people try to use the prodigal son and say, look, when he comes home, his father puts a ring on his finger. Is the prodigal son parable about jewelry? <laughs> yes or no? No. But people try to use the parable in the details. Why does he use the ring? The ring is trying to round out the story, right? The ring is not significant to the story except as it helps accomplish the fundamental point of what? He is so accepted that he gets the family ring. He has authority to do things on behalf of the family. That's the only reason why it's significant. It has nothing to do with our, doc our doctors on jewelry. That tells us, number two, details are insignificant. You know, sometimes I hear people talk about the sanctuary, they get into the hooks and the holes and the forks and the utensils. And I'm like, I don't think God's trying to teach us about forks. And what is that, how does that point me to Christ? They say, but it's made of silver. And silver was this. And then we start going into silver in the Bible and now we're trying to break down a fork. But we're missing the parable. It's like going again to the ring. Or let's use another one that people like to use. The rich man and Lazarus. Is that parable about what happens when you die? No, it is not. It was a common Jewish story that was told. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, I believe that when you die, the dead people in hell can communicate with people in heaven. And that there's life after death even in hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the time for your eternal destiny to be decided is now. There's no second chance is the point of the parable. And how you treat your neighbor who is laid at your gates with his needs or her needs will determine your destiny. See, in life, you had your good things and you neglected Lazarus. So now it's reversed. That is the point of the parable. But if you get into the fact, oh, there's a great gulf and people in heaven communicating with people in hell. And what does it mean to be in the bosom of Abraham? I mean, if everybody goes to heaven is in the bosom of Abraham, can think about it. Can 144,000 people fit in the bosom of Abraham? The answer is no. But this is what happens. We get caught up in the details, not recognizing that it serves a fundamental point. One last thing, understood, the parable is always understood in terms of the truth that it is designed to portray. In other words, because we know that the parable of the prodigal son is talking to the Pharisees who are upset that Jesus is receiving sinners. We understand how to interpret the parable. Did you know that the parable is not about the son who went out? The parable is about the son who stayed home. And the fact that he was upset that his father was accepting his brother who was lost and is now found. He was talking to the Pharisees. Because they said, this man received sinners. And all the sinners and publicans were drawing near to Jesus and they were upset. Can you imagine? Somebody is upset that Jesus is accepting someone. That Jesus is blessing them. You ever found yourself upset that God was blessing someone? Might want to think about it. That brother was lost in the house. So that's why the first two give the illustration of the last parable. There was a son who was lost outside the house. There was a son who was lost inside the house. And they switched places. One came back into the house. The other one stayed out and refused to go in. Why? Because his brother was in there. You know some people are going to miss out on heaven because of who's going to be there? Like if God can save this guy, no way I'm going to heaven. Literally, some people feel that way. Now, there's four goals of the plan of salvation. Now, I'm going to pause here because I want us to break out into some discussion groups. And I want you to start thinking about two basic questions. Are you ready? Yes? No? This is designed to be interactive, so <laughs> I told you not to eat that ice cream. <laughs> the first question is, if the sanctuary is designed to be a parable, what does it teach us, first of all, about salvation? That's the first question I want you to discuss 
I'm going to break you up into groups in a minute. The second question I want you to discuss in your group, after you say, well, what does this teach me about salvation? The second thing is, I want you to ask yourself, what does it teach you about the sinner? The person who is saved. Based on what you know about the sanctuary. So I'm not going to go any further for now. I'm going to come back again and present the next portion. Yes, so question one is, what does the sanctuary teach you? You said what? Oh, no, I don't have them up there. Yeah, I'm just giving them. No, no problem. So what does the sanctuary teach you about salvation? The second question is, if the sanctuary is a parable, what does it teach you about the sinner? Based on what you know about the sanctuary. Now, I'm telling you, it's a parable, just like the prodigal son, just like Akfash's goat, just like the rooster prince. There's some representation happening. There's a hidden meaning. It's placed beside some other concept to try to teach it. Now, the fact that the prince was under the table is not significant. Outside of the fact that it conveys something that he's behaving in a way that is not fitting for a royal prince. It could be under a mountain. It could be outside. It could be in a river. It wouldn't make any difference. It's an insignificant detail outside of its ability to contribute to that truth that the man has forgotten who he was. He's not a turkey. He's a prince. Are you following? All right. So as we, as we come back together, how was your, how was your discussion? Fruitful? Non-fruitful? Difficult? Yes? It was very fruitful, but it's too much. <laughs> too much. What's too much? One question. It, 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 it has so many... Um, Dimensions? Yeah. No, no, it's, it's just, it's one topic. Uh-huh. It's all about one topic, but so many elements. Okay. Like what elements? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can start with that um, it is, like, it is an image of the heavenly sanctuary, which is basically, I mean, the elements show that it is the throne of God. Uh-huh. That basically God's goal is to dwell under his people, but because... God, like, but you got to zoom out. You got to zoom out, right? Can't exist within uh -huh. God. Right. He had to find a way how to clothe himself to still be with them. Uh huh. And to make a way for people to come in his presence. Okay. And all the elements of the sanctuary tell us how to do that. So you're saying for who to come into his presence? Because in the sanctuary, only priests, the high priest. Yeah, sinful men. Get back. Aren't the priests sinful? Pardon? Aren't the priests sinful men? Yeah, but they had to go through the same process in order to go into the sanctuary. Which process? <laughs> Sorry? Which process did they have to go through? Yeah, sacrificing, uh, like the sacrifices. Right, but so how come another Israelite going through a sacrifice couldn't just go in then? Because Jehovah chose the priests, he chose the Levites. Because the priests were... So because God chose the Levites. They Okay, yes. That was because they're representatives of Christ, okay. So then there was a difference between them and the rest of the congregation. Is that the idea? They were parallel in themselves. <laughs> okay. Okay, true. Any other feedback on your discussion? Yes. Uh, in a nutshell, I'd say that to teach about salvation, that salvation was Yes. And then that for the sinner, that the sinner had to prove that. Okay. Okay. Yes. That's good. Yes. We were talking about the idea of like the sinner killing the animal. Uh huh. <laughs> That's so for like you see how bad he seemed. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Because my brother, he was saying like he cannot imagine himself like actually. <laughs> yes. Slicing, slicing the throat. You don't want to get used to it. That's scary. Of course, you don't want to. But... So, someone else, feedback on your discussion. I know some people are not going to talk because this is a big group. So, whoever has courage, yes.
Uh-huh. So it teaches you that the sinner needs to be separated from sin? Okay, and that it's a process. Okay. All right. Someone else? Yes. The first thing, so when you go in and there's the altar of burnt offering, so it uh -huh. teaches you that um, it's not the death of the sinner, it's the death of the substitute. That's mm -hmm. the first thing that you learn. Yes. The first thing you learn is the substitute. That's right. She said that when you walk in the sanctuary, the first thing you learn is the substitute, right? There's the altar of burnt offering. So that's the first thing you, you learn about when you go into the parable. Yes. Um, we talked about the cooperation between the sinner and God. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Nice. I like the cooperation. That's interesting because the cooperation, right, with the lamb, the question then becomes, does the sinner have any work that they do to save themselves? Well, uh-huh. They're the ones bringing the offering. They're the ones killing the lamb. So does that make the lamb worthy because they killed it? <laughs> Is the sacrifice accepted because they killed it? So then their work means nothing. So, so here's the question. Is that just a detail? Yes. No. Just to round out the story. No. Because if, if the, work, the sinner's work doesn't merit anything, what does the person bringing the lamb have to do with salvation? Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Does that make us the one who bring the lamb? Or so then, what do you do with the fact that the Bible calls us priests? We are royal priesthood. <laughs> so does that not apply for us, or? Yes, it does. So. That's a different story. Okay, I want you to hold your hand because I got some new hands. Go ahead. I think the fact that the sinner is still in the, the lab. Uh-huh. The lab cannot be just any lab. It has to be a lab without spots. It has to be a lab that it's not, doesn't have any purity. Okay. For the lab to reach that stage, it means that the lab has to be taken care of properly. Yes. So by you taking care of the lab properly, it means that now you have an affection towards the lab. Uh-huh. Now the fact that you have to kill it shows how severe a sin is. Okay. Yep. Okay. Anyone else who hasn't spoken, I want to give everybody a chance. We'll have more discussion. Don't worry. Yes. Yes. The big picture. That's right. That's right. You're hitting it. Anyone else? All right. I'm going to come back to you. I got to move on. So just hold it. I know, I know you have a lot to share. <laughs> so, but I want to make sure we take a break soon and I got to get through this. Um, but we'll have more discussion. So just write it down. All right. So... We're going to take a break in about 10 minutes, but I want to first talk about if the sanctuary is a parable of the plan of salvation. If it's a plan to teach us what is salvation about, the question then becomes, what are the goals of salvation? So if we don't understand what salvation is about, then we obviously will miss the parable as well. Now, this is what I mean by this. If you're not aware that the prodigal son was told to Pharisees, you will interpret the prodigal son parable differently. Are you with me? If you're not thinking, you're just thinking, here's a story. Man had two sons, one left. You think it's about the son who left. But that's not what the parable is about. The only reason why the, the, the son who left is significant is to show how bad he was and how willing the father was to accept him when he ran to meet him. 
but that was only significant to the fact that it showed how ungrateful and how careless the other brother was of his brother. Which was the building up to that one central point. You as a Pharisee, you should be rejoicing that the sinners and publicans are coming to Christ. And what do you expect? You're angry that I'm receiving them? That would be like a father rejecting his own son. And you would be upset that a father would not accept would accept his own son? I want you to meditate on that for a second. The value of one, but not just one, one son. Listen, we live in a time of absentee fatherism. Fathers do not take up responsibilities as fathers all over the world. And we talk about how negative and how much of an impact it is on the home that fathers do not become fathers and are not real fathers. Any fool can have a baby, but it takes a man to be a father. So now in this mindset, can you imagine that Christ is saying, if you are behaving like the Pharisees, this man receives sinners and they're upset. He says, this would be like affirming absentee fatherism. Listen, just because your son committed all these mistakes, you have every right to abandon your son. And he says, look, you may do that, but that's not what God is like. Only to show the sinfulness and ugliness of their own hearts. So it's very important that we understand the goals. The first goal of the plan of salvation is to vindicate the character of God. That is the first goal. The plan of salvation didn't just come out of nowhere. God didn't just say, hey, let them make me a sanctuary just because. No, how did they get into a sinful situation in the first place? We got there, how? Because there was a serpent in Eden, yes? And that serpent that was there in Eden was the same serpent that was where? In heaven. So this controversy that started in heaven spilled down and the charges was that, listen, we shouldn't have to keep the law. God is not just. This is his character. He exalts Christ above Lucifer unjustly. Not because Jesus is actually divine in his nature, but because the Father is arbitrary. He just randomly chooses, oh, I'm going to exalt you above everybody else. Make other people jealous and then kick you out because you're jealous. Number two, the second purpose of the plan of salvation is to secure the loyalty of the unfallen worlds. We must remember that just because other worlds are not fallen and just because two-thirds of the angels are still in heaven doesn't mean that everything is going just fine. There's still questions in their minds. Because guess what? He did kick out Lucifer and a third of the angels when they challenged him. So the perception can be, and this is what I always have to remind people, especially my atheist friends, they say, yeah, but if God knew this and God knew that and God knew this, I said, let me ask you a question. If you knew, if you knew that President Obama was going to ignite a bomb that was going to blow up the whole world, right? This was going to end the world. You knew that he had a bomb. You're the only one that knows this. And you decide in front of the entire nation, in front of CNN News, right, you're going to go to the White House in America and you're going to assassinate President Obama. Now, if you survive to make it to kill him, <laughs> but let's just say you live to kill him, and now you're sitting in prison and you're waiting execution, and everyone says, hey, listen, man, you're going to die. You're, you, I mean, we're going to kill you. You're going to be executed for this. This is a terrible crime. And your excuse is, but he was going to destroy the world. Please give us evidence that he was going to destroy the world. Where can you point us to? I said, what would you say? What, was the, what can the man say? He's the only one that knew. I said, now you're feeling the quandary of God. God knows the future. God knows everything. But if he destroys Lucifer, everyone else doesn't know what God knows. Everyone else in the universe can't see what God sees. So therefore, God has to let certain things play out to a degree 
So he can prove and say, let me show you what Lucifer is trying to do. Let me show you where it's going so at the end of it all, you will agree with me. The right thing to do was to do what? Destroy him. So in other words, you'd have to wait for President Obama to get his finger on the bomb, to have the bomb set up, because you know where he's going to set off the bomb. And you have to wait until it's there, catch him on camera, show everybody else that he was going to blow up the world, and then assassinate him. <laughs> and at that point in time, is anybody going to be upset? They're all going to be like, thank you for saving us. Are you following what I'm saying? I have this conversation with my atheist friends all the time. Securing the loyalty of the unfallen world. That means Jesus didn't just die for sinners. He died for all the universe. You have to recognize that. His death didn't just impact us. We are sometimes so egocentrical as human beings. Oh, it's because God loved me, God loved us. That's true, but that is narrow-minded. You're missing the parable. Because we want to focus on one aspect of some emotional peace of the story, but that's not the total story. Number three, to accomplish the salvation of sin sinful humanity who are responding to the offer of salvation. That is the third purpose of the plan of salvation. So purpose number one, does anybody remember what the first purpose was without looking at their notes? To what? To vindicate the character of God. What was purpose number two? To secure the loyalty of the unfallen universe. And purpose number three? To accomplish the salvation of sinful humanity who respond to the offer of salvation. Now, purpose number four is to destroy Satan. Those are the four goals of the plan of salvation, as illustrated by the sanctuary. Now, in these sessions, we're going to go through this and explain piece by piece. And say, look, okay, how do these things correspond? How do these things correspond? So let me talk about the three main aspects of the parable of the sanctuary. How many? Three. three. Okay. If you're taking notes, you should be writing these down. Number one, the substitutionary sacrifice. The first thing you learn from the parable of the sanctuary in every single offering that is involved, he says, listen, there is the shedding of blood. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11 and 14, you can put that in your notes. It reminds us that in the blood is the what? Is the life. So why is the blood shed? If the blood is a symbol of life, in every offering, you see, let me give you an example of why, how we get caught up in the details and we miss the bigger picture. People will say, well, do you know why it was a sheep? Because their wool is white, and white is a symbol of righteousness and purity. I said, that's interesting, because you can also offer an ox, and oxes are not white. And goats are not white. So if that's true, then you're saying that only applies to this offering, but the ox means something. It's because you're getting into the details, you're missing the bigger picture. The point was, if you committed a sin, you could offer an ox, you could offer a goat, you could offer a lamb, and you could even offer a dove. If you were poor and you couldn't afford sheep, you say, well, I'll take a little turtle dove and I'll offer that on my behalf. The point was, something was going to shed blood. So the whole idea of shedding blood was something was going to lay down its life for my sin. This is from First Selected Messages, page 107 says these words, every dying victim was a type of Christ, which lesson was impressed upon the mind and heart in the most solemn sacred ceremony and explained definitely by the priests. Sacrifices were explicitly planned by who? By God himself. God is the one who planned these sacrifices to teach this great and momentous truth that through the blood of Christ, what's that next word? Alone. That through the blood of Christ alone, there is what? 
forgiveness of sins. So the first aspect of the parable is the substitutionary sacrificial shedding of blood. Something's going to lay down its life. So what is this parable trying to teach me? It's trying to teach me that something has to lay down its life. It's only through the shedding of blood that I can be forgiven. Period. It also is a reminder through the substitution aspect that what the animal goes through is what I deserve. And what I go through is what the animal deserves. The animal deserves to walk free. I deserve to be killed. But the animal is killed and I go home free. Why am I free? Because the animal what? Died. It took my place. That's the symbol of laying your hands on the head of the animal and confessing your sin. You are transferring guilt to the animal. So we can get into the details after we understand the bigger picture. Whatever you put on the altar is your substitute. Are you following this? Whatever we put on the altar is our substitute, whether it's a thank offering, whether it's a peace offering. People say, well, the peace offering, I say, well, the Bible says in Romans 5 that we have peace with who? With God. Through who? Through Christ Jesus. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ. <laughs> so the peace offering... That would say, okay, yeah, there was tension between us because the whole point of this thing is one, to accomplish the salvation of sinful men. That's one of the goals. But it is also to vindicate the character of God. So that means God is willing to take your place. Does that really add up to Lucifer's accusations against God? You say, well, let me get this straight. God is selfish. God just wants worship for his own glory. God doesn't love you. He'll only use you for his own purposes and then do this. That doesn't really line up with the fact that he would come down and die for someone who wronged him. If God was as you said, he would have destroyed us. But the substitutionary sacrifice, hold on, I'm going to get to questions in a sec. The substitutionary sacrifice reminds us that God took our place. He provided a way for us when we ourselves got ourselves into the mess. Now, the second aspect of the parable is the priestly ministry. The priestly ministry. Let me go a little bit further with what I mean. Take your Bibles, go to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. I just want to... I want to have you read this because sometimes we miss this point with all the, the laws in Leviticus and the actions that are expected of the priests. Leviticus chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, the Bible says, The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all its fat, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make what? Are you guys out there? So the priest shall make what? Atonement for his sin that he has committed and it shall be what? Forgiven him. So now the lamb makes atonement. But now the Bible is saying in Leviticus chapter 4, the priest also makes atonement for the person. By taking his fingers, dipping it in the blood, and the Bible says that he puts it on the horns of the altar, he removes the fat, and then he burns this thing, and he says, this is going to make atonement for the man. So now we have the second aspect of the parable is recognizing this essential point that the ministry of the priesthood stresses the seriousness of sin. The sharp cleavage it has made between heaven and humanity. And the ugliness of the estrangement between holy creator and sinful creature. We can't even approach God. The message of the priesthood is that, listen, because of sin, 
You can't even come to God. Someone has to mediate between you. And that is the priest. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. He is the only one. But the priest, again, it was a parable to teach us about this fact. Now, there's obviously so many other dimensions we can go to. Now, the priesthood had two aspects, and then we need to take a break. First one is the holy place, or the first apartment of the sanctuary. In the priesthood, it was a continuous ministry in the holy place. Access to God was always available through the priest. Now you know why he set up the tithing system. If the priest was supposed to be mediating for you, and he was out there trying to reap his field so he could eat, what do you think would happen? You got no one in the sanctuary for you. Are you following that? So in the parable, what we recognize is, is he says, because the people are bringing the tithe, right? In the tithe, the priest, all he has to focus on is doing what? Interceding on behalf of the, the people. That's right. And not only that, he keeps the lamps always burning. He makes sure the altar of burnt offering always has a sacrifice burning. He makes sure that there's always fresh bread on the table of showbread. He makes sure that the altar of incense is always lifting incense. It's constant, continuous. This is the Daniel 8 that we understand we call the daily that is taken away. So when he talks about trampling down the sanctuary, he is trampling down the plan of salvation. Are you following? It's not just about, oh yeah, you know, 2300 days. No, 1844, all that kind of stuff is letting us know that this particular system in place is attacking at the very heart of the plan of salvation. It's distorting people's concept of how they are to be saved. And if you destroy the plan of salvation, how can you vindicate the character of God? Because that was one of the goals. How can you destroy Satan if that was one of the goals? How can you secure the loyalty of unfallen beings? Now you recognize why this Catholic system of belief is viewed the way it is by the Bible. To distort the plan of salvation is to undermine the plan to vindicate the character of God. It is to let Satan remain alive. This is why she writes, confessing to a priest is just how the devil would have it to be. But you know, we sometimes think that because we're Protestant, we don't fall into this trap. So you know what we do? The devil is slick. He created these little small groups where we have men's group and women's group where we just confess all of our deepest, darkest sins to each other. Just because it's not a priesthood doesn't make it right. There are some things that we should only confess to God. I'll say amen for myself. <laughs> the second aspect of the priest was a yearly service in the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. In the Holy of Holies, this was an annual service. The yearly service occurred only one day each year. It was the only ritual that directly involved the ministry of the high priest in the most holy place. And it was primarily, get this, sanctuary-centered. So the holy place ministry, the always ministry, the daily ministry of the priest was for the cleansing of the individual. But when you came for the one day a year for the Day of Atonement, the focus was no longer on the individual, it was on the sanctuary itself. So the whole idea here is by the time the work is finished in the most holy place, the individual is already clean. Are you following that? This is a very important idea in the parable. The priest says, look, in my ministry on your behalf, first of all, you are cleansed. But now, secondly, there's also the cleansing of the sanctuary, the scapegoat, which has nothing to do, by the way, with forgiveness of sins. Has nothing to do with it. If you look at it in Leviticus 16, I'll get there maybe at the end, you'll notice that 
it'll say, an atonement shall be made, but then the text continues on on the Day of Atonement. About the scapegoat being cast out by a fit man. It has nothing to do with the sanctuary, except to bear the sins that he just cleansed from it. So that takes us beyond to destroying Satan as well. And it's tied right there in the Bible, and we just didn't know it. Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit would continue to abide with us as we reflect upon these things. We ask that we may understand salvation and sanctification better by your grace and to your glory. It is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.